Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Darling, the yeah. spooky season is upon us. I know. I'm so excited. I spent a lot of time, probably too much time, trying to find a good Tim Curry worst wish, worst witch gif, gif, gif. Animated image. Yeah. I, it's still a big debate on how you say it. Jife. Is that really how you say it? Nobody knows how to say it. Okay. But then I realized that movie is so old uh, that the quality of them is really bad. So I went in many ways. The quality of the animated image. Uh huh. Uh, So I went with a Hocus Pocus one today. Okay. October's coming and it's the spooky times. I'm so excited. Anyway, we have an episode. And it's not really about spookums. So I don't know why we're talking about the spooky times. I just wanted to get you talking and get things warmed up. Yeah. Okay. What are we talking about? <laughs> Angels in America. Where? What? Which city? It's this doggy right here in your lap. She's an angel and she's in America. Yeah, don't worry. It's not about you. Uh, we're talking about the play. Oh. It's a play. You know this. You're just trying to be all... I don't know what the word is. Entertaining is what I'm aiming for. Oh, that's not what I was going to go for, okay. but okay. I love you. <laughs> Sometimes I think you'd be happier if we just put the the outline up online and called that the show. <laughs> no. Angels in America, the play, or its full title, mm-hmm. Angels in America, a gay fantasia on national themes. I honestly did not know that that was its full title. No? No. I say it all the time. Did you think I was making it up? Yes. (laughs) Because the copy of Angels in America I have, it doesn't like say that on the cover, I don't think. (laughs) No, it does not. So, you know, when I first read the play as a freshman in college, I didn't know that was its full title. It's on the title page. Who reads the title page? (laughs) Other than you. So what's beyond the title page of Angels in America, A Gay Fantasia on National Themes by Tony Kushner? A play that's really long. Longer than the title, even. So uh, if you are not familiar with Angels in America, do not worry. Eventually, we will talk about what it's about. It's it's a, a very long play mm-hmm. that is broken into two parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, part one is Millennium Approaches, and part two is Perestroika. Typically, them together runs over seven hours. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's very long. Uh, and it has won uh, numerous awards, including the Pulitzer Prize for drama and uh, Tony Awards, among other things. The great thing about being two parts is it can win twice as many. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Uh, it did win like back to back years because part one premiered before part two. Uh, and then they were able to, like, be up for multiple Tonys and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The playwright, uh, Tony Kushner, born in 1956 in New York City. Um, but he actually grew up in Louisiana and moved back to New York City to get a degree from Columbia in medieval studies. Mm-hmm, hmm Don't know what he was planning to do with that. <laughs> I feel like that's one of those degrees that unless you work at a museum, mm-hmm. what are you going to do with it? Make really great uh, Twitter threads that go viral. Yeah. Yeah. About how that medieval art in that movie was wrong. Yeah. 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 Which is really forethinking for someone in 19... 
for someone born in 1956 to plan yeah. their career around Twitter threats. Yeah. yeah. So like, oh, I'm going to go get this degree in the 70s. It'll be great. But after that, he went uh, and attended uh, the Tisch School of Arts in New York City at NYU. He's most known for writing Angels in America, but he has written dozens of other plays, including uh, new translations and adaptations of uh, Brecht plays, mm -hmm. things like that. Uh, he also has written the books for uh, some musicals, and he co-wrote the screenplay for Munich. Oh, and, yeah. And also wrote the screenplay for Fence, Fences and Lincoln. Hey! Yeah. I like all those movies. Uh, apparently, this was recently announced that he will be involved in the script remake for West Side Story. Okay. I'm, yeah. I'm still not on board. I'm not really on, on board with a remake of West Side Story at all. They got it right the first time. You don't, We don't need this. But... Steven Spielberg, so like... Yeah, all right. Who, who knows? I don't know. <laughs> uh, so how this play came to be. Mm -hmm. It is the work of Tony Kushner, as we know, when he was... Around the time he was in graduate school. He was focusing on a directing program, but he was getting into writing. Mm -hmm. uh, he partnered with a politically progressive San Francisco theater company mm -hmm. to create this play. The theater company... Uh, was interested in having a play written that was about the epidemic going on at the time. Which epidemic is this? AIDS. Oh, that one. Yeah. So we're gonna get, we're gonna talk about AIDS actually right now. That's what we're gonna talk about. Okay. Because it's important to know what it was like at the time. Yeah. Context it matters. You know. I've, yeah. So uh, AIDS was actually only first uh, clinically observed in 1981. Mm -hmm. It's not that long ago. No. And that's within the U.S. There were five initial cases showing symptoms of PCP, uh, a type of pneumonia that was extremely rare and was uh, connected to compromised immune systems. But these five initial people weren't showing any signs of a compromised immune system other than having this. Mm -hmm. uh, soon after, a previous rare skin cancer, Kaposi's sarcoma, started appearing in a number of cases. In 30 months, there were 26 cases reported among men that were all gay. Mm -hmm. And considering it was very rare, that's a lot. Yeah. In uh, 1982, they uh, made a link that what was happening was related to blood. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the first time the name AIDS was introduced. Uh, before that, they were using various terms uh, that referred to parts of the disease, such as it being an opportunist infection. Mm -hmm. Or uh, titles like GRID, which stood for Gay-Related Immune Deficiency. But they found out during this time that it was not isolated to gay communities and was not just them. Mm -hmm. Not just a certain part of the, demo you know, the community. Uh, so they created a new term that better fit what was actually happening. Mm-hmm. The AIDS virus mm -hmm. uh, originated in non-human primates in West Central Africa, transferring to humans at the start of the 20th century. The earliest well-documented case of HIV was in 1959 in the Congo, and the earliest described case of what was believed to have been AIDS was uh, in Norway in 1966. Mm -hmm. But it can be... There's like the virus can trace back to kind of jumping to humans somewhere around like 1910, 1920 in different ways. Right. You know, viruses change, they grow, they mutate. 
there's much better uh, things out there to really get into the medical part of it. Yeah. If you want to know. We're here to talk about a play. Yeah. <laughs> In uh, 1982, in the U.S., 850 people uh, had died of AIDS. Mm -hmm. The following year, it was over 2,000. And by 1984, it was over 4,000. A huge jump. Yes. Uh, In 1985, President Reagan finally mentioned AIDS for the first time. Mm -hmm. And that was when he was questioned by reporters in connection to it. Uh, So for several years here, three years of it being... Or four years of it being known, Mm -hmm. he never said anything about it. Right. And that year, there was uh, 5,600 people who died. Around this time is when they developed uh, antibody tests, so they could test blood and see if it was there or not. Right. And that started to get used, though not as widely as it should have been, or properly. Uh, Because it was so stigmatized. It's terrifying. Yes, yes. Well, and it wasn't just, like, to test people, but they could also test, like, you know, blood donations. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times they just didn't. Right. And over the next decade, there would be a lot of cases of, like, certain blood banks being, like, shut down and people arrested for, like, giving out HIV-positive blood that they knew Ooh. was HIV-positive. okay. Yeah. Yee. Yeah. And that would, like, happen, like, across the world. There were issues of it in multiple places. Mm-hmm. In 1987, uh, AZT, which was the first anti-HIV drug, uh, came about. And this was around the time that about 20,000 people had died within the U.S. total at this point. Uh, The AIDS Memorial Quilt also started at this time. uh, And the following year, 5,000 people died. The year after, it was up to 15,000 within the U.S. So it was growing. By 1991, 10 million people worldwide had HIV and 1 million were in the U.S. There were 20,000 deaths alone that year in the U.S. And it would jump to 40,000 within two years. Mm -hmm. I included all these numbers because I think it's really important to understand the magnitude. The exponential growth. Yes. Especially in certain communities. Yes. Um, You know, it went from being five people to tens of thousands tens of thousands to a million within the u.s in less than 10 years Mm -hmm. Uh, these cases were in certain communities um such as the gay communities Mm -hmm. especially within certain pockets of uh cities you'll hear a lot of stories when you listen to artists especially that were around during this time in places like new york or california were just talking about how their friends were disappearing yeah and when you look at these numbers, like, you can totally understand, mm-hmm. like, yes, they were. Stories like going to a funeral and seeing who's missing and finding out that you didn't even hear about their funeral. Yes. Or one of the uh, actors that was in Angels in America that was interviewed later on, he was talking about how he was in this one show that had, like, a huge cast, a uh, giant cast, and 80% of the people in that cast uh, eventually died of AIDS. Mm-hmm. Um, So according to uh, the author, Tony Kushner, uh, in 1985, the first person he personally knew died of AIDS. Mm -hmm. It was a dancer that he had had a crush on. He had this dream where he saw him in his bed, sick, and the ceiling collapsed and an angel came into the room. Uh, So he ended up like writing this poem like thing. He he Mm says like, I'm not a poet, but it was like a poem. (laughs) Uh, Titled it Angels in America and it just... Got put away on a shelf. Like, mm-hmm. I did this thing, it's gone. 
around this time, Oscar Eustace, who was the current dramaturg for Eureka Theater in San Francisco, came to see Kushner's show A Bright Room Called Day. Um, And this was only after he was supposed to go see a different show and was like too late and they weren't doing late seating. So he's like, well, I can make it to this one. I'll just go to this one instead. Uh, and apparently, like, it was, like, terrible. Like, the set fell down and stuff. It was not a great night for the show. But Oscar had reached out to Tony afterwards about doing a reading of the play in San Francisco. Great thing about readings, no sets. No sets. Uh... You don't have to worry about sets, costumes. Mm-hmm. Much easier. The worst that can fall down is, I guess, the table. <laughs> the table they're reading around. That'd be bad. Yeah. This kind of kicked off. Uh, the relationships and connections that would lead to Angels in America happening. Uh, a while later, the company was trying to get the rights to the play The Normal Heart by Larry Kramer. It was a political play about the AIDS crisis, but the rights went to a different company. Mm-hmm. Um, and they decided to produce a new play about the epidemic that was surrounding their community. Uh, Tony was commissioned to do it um, with a grant. The contract uh, that he was commissioned under had some, like, rules he had to follow. So, like, the play had to be two hours or less. Mm -hmm. I think part of this is because the stage reading they did was, like, three hours long. (laughs) They're like, this is too long. Play should be shorter. And then it also had to have a minimum of four parts, three for women, uh, because those were the core people in the company. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Tony's plan for this play was for it to be called Angels in America, and to be about five gay men and an angel. And he was like, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. <laughs> Maybe an angel is three ladies. Yeah. Um, the one thing that he did know was he wanted the play to not just be about AIDS, but to show people AIDS. Mm-hmm. How it affects the physical, the person, their relationships. Yeah. Uh, Tony completely missed the deadline for when this play was supposed to be done. Uh, (laughs) They were actually, they like missed when rehearsals were supposed to start. It was getting to the end of their season and they had said this play was going to be the end of their season and there was nothing and they just had to put a different show up. So eventually though, they're like, we we just need to see what you have. Let's just do like a little private reading for ourselves of what you got. And at that point, he had 120 pages. Which That's is pretty good. It's two hours long. All right. He had not made it to an intermission yet. <laughs> and his draft had said that the angel was supposed to come through the ceiling before intermission. And that hadn't happened. <laughs> and he just didn't know what he was going to do, what he was going to cut. The first reading was apparently five hours long. Hooray. <laughs> Theater. Now, that's how you sell a lot of raisinets. Yeah. You just trap people in a room until they're starving. Yeah. Now, um, an actress, uh, Sigrid, Sigrid Worshimit, uh, was a part of the reading. Uh, she also read some of his ideas and writings for, for what was supposed to come after and told him that it was too good. He couldn't cut it. Mm-hmm. He needed to just make multiple plays. Obviously. <laughs> Because that's a thing people want. Two five-hour plays, right? Right. Well, you know, like, yes, keep editing and reworking things, but there's too much material here. <laughs> mm-hmm. You can't cut it all, and you have too many ideas that still need to come to pass. All right, we'll film it in New Zealand. Christopher <laughs> Lee's interested in coming back. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> that happened. He, he did go on to make two plays. 
with a lot of rewrites that happened. Mm-hmm. Even after it went up, uh, there are rewrites that even happened in 2010. <laughs> I think he has said now that he thinks he's done. Okay, that's so, good. That's but good. who knows? Might might change some some things up like, again. I Tony Kushner. I, I like that he treats his work as a living thing. Mm-hmm. He's one of those writers that's always talking about the characters just talking to him. Yeah, and him just transcribing it. You know. Yeah. He's that kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the kind of guy that blows by deadlines by like six, eight months, oh, yeah. a year and a half. Oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> like everything. There was a quote actually from one of the people involved at the theater company that commissioned him and they're like we should have known because it took him like five months to send us this other thing wasn't that like a headshot or something well i think it was like the copy of the play that he saw that they wanted to do the stage reading of five months to send something he already had (laughs) written he wanted to rework more of it i'm sure there's many people out there who have not heard of this who don't Mm -hmm. know what it's about so we're gonna try Uh to give you a quick plot summary. Of this seven-hour piece of work. We're going to try. We're going to try to do this. Do you want to help with this? Do I you would wa- love okay. to help because I love this show. Yeah, yeah. All right. So part one, Millennium Approaches. It is the mid-1980s in New York City. We find Pryor Walter and his boyfriend, Lewis. At the start of the play, Pryor tells Lewis that he has been diagnosed with AIDS. Uh, their friend Belise, who is an ex-drag queen and, and uh, nurse in the hospital, is there for Pryor uh, when Lewis leaves him unable to deal with the reality of the disease. Uh, Pryor begins to hear angelic voices telling him to prepare for an arrival, and he meets ghosts of his ancestors, the Pryor Priors. Yes. I love them <laughs> so much. Uh, who say he is a prophet. Uh, another character, Joe, good old Joe, he's a Mormon Republican uh, a legal clerk who works in Lewis's office. It's tense. Yeah. He is married to Harper, an agoraphobic, Valium-addicted, uh, good old Mormon housewife. It's tense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Joe is offered a job in D.C. by lawyer Roy Cohn. Welcome hey. back to the show, Roy. <laughs> Uh, Harper refuses to leave. Their marriage sucks. Uh, Joe eventually comes out to Harper that he is gay. Uh, she retreats into drug-fueled fantasies with a man named Mr. Lies, an imaginary travel agent who lives in the refrigerator. Yeah. I love Mr. Lies. She meets Pryor wandering the streets of New York, thinking she's in Antarctica, but he's at home. It's sort of like a shared dream thing. Yeah. Joe calls his uh, reliable uh, Mormon-to-the-bone mother. He comes out to her, and she comes out, in a more literal sense to him, moving to New York. Yes. Selling her home, dropping her life to try to to save her sons. Uh, Doesn't quite work. As Joe and Lewis start hooking up. Yeah. Roy Cohn discovers he also has an advanced case of AIDS and is dying. Uh, he tells everyone that he has liver cancer, including his doctor. Like, no, no, no. Liver cancer. Yeah. You know who gets AIDS? Not the kind of guy I am. I get liver cancer. It's a great scene. Roy is facing disbarment for borrowing money from a client. He tries to uh, squeeze Joe into the Justice Department to help be his eyes and ears and, you know, owe him a few favors. Joe refuses because he's an upstanding Boy Scout. Roy collapses in pain, and while waiting to go to the hospital, he's met by the ghost of Ethel Rosenberg. Rosenberg. Welcome back to the show. 
And then we reach the end of uh, Angels in America Millennium Approaches when an angel crashes through the ceiling of Pryor's bedroom and proclaims the great work has begun. You know, having an angel crash the ceiling Mm -hmm. in a play is one of those things where there's like a person who, or a playwright who writes in that there's blood splattered across the entire (laughs) set at the end of act one. And you're like, what the hell are you thinking? Do you hate your stagehands? <laughs> That's why it's the end of the play. They they get to sweep up and there's no uh, uh, time limit. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God that's how this ended up being. Can you imagine if that was intermission? As oh. it was originally intended and not the end of part one. So many brooms. But I did go to a play once where they did have blood splatter at the end of like... There were still two scenes to go in the show. There was blood everywhere. And you know what they did? They paused the show for like six minutes to clean it up in the dark. (laughs) It was stupid. That's just poor foresight. I was like, this is dumb. This was a student play. So it was like written by a student. It was being produced for the first time. And I was like, no one said to you, bad idea. (laughs) This is your time to do it. Your play has not been published. Change that. Learn by doing. So bad. Our, our mistakes help us grow. Okay, part two. Part two, Angels in America, Perestroika. Pryor's encounter with the angel. Uh, she reveals a mystical book underneath his kitchen tile, uh, and he, he reads it with uh, magical seeing stones. Yeah. Uh, heaven resembles San Francisco, and God created the universe through sex with his angels. Oh, yeah. God, bored with the angels, gave mankind the power to create and change. The progress mankind has made on Earth caused heaven to suffer earthquake tremors and deteriorate. On the day of the San Francisco earthquake of 1906, God abandoned heaven. The angel's message is for mankind to stop moving. If progress stops, heaven will restore itself. Duh. Clearly. In the hospital, Roy meets Belize. Uh, he uses his uh, connections to get the experimental AZT drug, not uh, be part of the drug trial, where there's a 50-50 shot, he's in the control group, to get the drug. Mm-hmm. Belize and Ethel Rosenberg are his only company. Pryor goes to the Mormon Visitor Center to research angels and meets Joe's mama. Ethel Rosenberg watches Roy die and tells him he's been disbarred. Roy, uh, delirious with his disease, thinks she is his mother, begs her for comfort and to sing. She sings a lullaby and he passes, but suddenly comes back to reveal it was a trick. He's finally beaten her. He dies. Because he's an asshole. Uh, Belize and Lewis steal Roy's AZT for Pryor. Uh, Pryor collapses from pneumonia while at the Mormon Center, and Hannah takes him to the hospital, uh, Hannah being Joe's mom. Uh, He tells her of his vision and is surprised that she accepts it. Uh, At the hospital, the angel reappears angry. He wrestles the angel on Hannah's advice, and a ladder into heaven is opened. He he goes on up to the east side of heaven and tells (laughs) the other angels he will not deliver the message. Without progress, humanity will perish. The play ends with an epilogue in 1990. Harper has left Joe for San Francisco. Pryor has made amends with Lewis, and they are friends. He, along with Belize, care for Pryor together. Hannah has accepted Joe and is friends with Pryor. The last line of the play is uh, to the audience. Spoken by Pryor. 
This disease will be the end of many of us, but not nearly all. And the dead will be commemorated and will struggle on with the living, and we are not going away. We won't die secret deaths anymore. The world only spins forward. We will be citizens. The time has come. By now, you are fabulous creatures, each and every one of you. And I bless you. More life. The great work begins. Ta-da! Ta-da! So if you've never heard of Angels in America, now you know! But I highly suggest you go read it or watch it because there's so much we skipped over to do that in, I don't know, five minutes and not eight hours. (laughs) So one thing, I didn't have this in my notes, but I want to talk about it. One thing I think is really interesting is Mm -hmm. how many um, plays were made in this time frame Mm -hmm. within, say, eight years that had to do with AIDS. Yes. Also, they had angels. Yeah. There was a lot of plays that had to do with angels and the world ending. So we got The Normal Heart. Mm-hmm. We got Marisol. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't talk about uh, AIDS plays without Red. Rent. Mm-hmm. The most financially successful AIDS play. Yeah. Oh, Falsettos. March of the mm-hmm. Falsettos. Falsetto Land. Yep. Uh, and many more that I'm sure we're just not thinking of right now. Mm-hmm. But that's just, I mean, that's a lot. Those were all made within or written, premiered within like six to eight years. Yeah. Yeah. So there was definitely, um, you know, a lot of people having to deal and process with what's going on and reacting to what's going on in the world, not only with this epidemic, Mm -hmm. but also everything else going on in the world, how it relates to what's going on um, in a sense that the world's crashing crashing around them. Yeah. Which, you know, I can relate to a lot. Big clocks ticking, the the neoliberal consensus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's amazing that, you know, how many decades later, still kind of relevant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Except we're not talking about the millennium now. And I thought it was just the Illuminati seeding all these ideas. But no, your thing makes sense. Yeah. 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 Okay. Part one, Millennium Approaches, uh, premiered in May 1991 in San Francisco. Uh, the next year in London, and it opened on Broadway in 1993. Part two was still in development. Uh, part two actually has had probably the most extensive like rewrites and reworking, mm-hmm. um, which is understandable because that's when like things get weird. Things get weird. Like part one, it's still out there, but I feel like it's something that's much easier for people to take their grandma to. Part two. But, like, even structurally, part one is cause, effect, yeah. motivation. It, it, it just mm-hmm. works on the page. Part two, you got you got to do the work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, it had had um, some stage readings in 91, 92, and it did make a premiere in uh, the end of 92. But it didn't come to Broadway until a while after. Like, I think it was, like, six months after part one opened. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in 1993, uh, there, the London debut at the National Theatre, uh, where they had uh, a revival of part one, and then we're doing part two for the first time. It had Daniel Craig mm-hmm. as Joe, and uh, Jason Isaacs as Lewis. So, any of you James Bond, Lucius Malfoy shippers out there. There you go. You've, you've got some interesting pictures to look at. Yeah. Got a lot of uh, inspiration for your fanfic. <laughs> Uh, now it has been produced 
numerous times. Uh, a lot of times, including just this past season. Yeah, uh, just this past year on Broadway and in London. Um, right, it was like a London production that moved to Broadway. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, it with Spider Man, with Spider Man <laughs> and uh, Nathan Lane and other people. A very, very big cast. Um, I cannot imagine Nathan Lane as that part. He's so nice. Yeah. He's such a friendly little man. But then we saw that clip, and I was like, oh, I kind of get it now. <laughs> Could not imagine this. But I see. Yeah. You yeah. must have nailed your audition. Yeah, I guess so. Now, well, it was running there. Uh, this was one where part one ran for three and a half hours, and part two ran for about four and a quarter. <laughs> and uh you for the most part to get tickets you had to commit to like two days mm-hmm. um because they weren't letting you like buy tickets back to back i think for people's health the audience's <laughs> health and safety <laughs> but then towards the end of the run you were able to start buying consecutive tickets with like a two-hour break mm-hmm. um you know some theater companies will do part one but not part two at the same time do that one like next year but sometimes they do. Mm-hmm. It is such an undertaking because the one big thing, you know, we talked, we gave you guys the plot summary, but the thing is, is it's eight actors. They're playing 30 parts. There's all these side characters we did not talk about. Right. For seven to eight hours. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, Ethel Rosenberg, Joe's mom, mm-hmm. uh, talking uh, marionette at the Mormon Center. Mm-hmm. And uh, a rabbi who has a, a bit part running a, a funeral in the beginning. That's one actor. <laughs> it's intense. Which I also, I think, is like, it's great that even like the Broadway production, they they split the parts up that way. Mm-hmm. They could have easily been like, well, our stars are too big name. We're not going to put them through this. We'll have right. other people. We have a budget for more than eight people. Yeah. Not like this podunk, politically active San Francisco mm-hmm. joint. But... They didn't do it that way. You know, it's something that's uh, Tony Kushner like wrote into the script. This is how you divide up the parts. Um, there's also like stage directions that give suggestions for very limited sets. And part of his style of theater is that the audience should know that they're often watching a show <laughs> and having that like the same actors play different parts kind of breaks down characters connections mm-hmm. and also boundaries that they set up when they're it gets very you know in your head <laughs> he did translate a lot of brecht you yeah, said so yeah. so there you it go makes sense. it makes sense <laughs> there you go um i should do a thing on brecht one of these you days should. you should I love that guy now in 2003 there was the hbo miniseries mm-hmm. um which inspired this because we randomly came across it at a thrift store and i was like oh my gosh we're now the proud owners of a second-hand copy yeah. of Angels in America on DVD. They also did my favorite thing of keeping it as eight actors, mm-hmm. which is so good. Um, it had Meryl Streep, Al Pacino, Patrick Wilson, Mary Louise Parker, Emma Thompson, Jeffrey Wright, uh, who's actually the only original cast member from a stage production. Yes. Um, uh, he played Belize on Broadway. In 1994. Yes. In part Two when the well, when part two like happened, mm-hmm. he played it in both. But now uh, Carrie Brokaw, uh, who was the executive producer for this, uh, apparently worked for ten years to get this made, <laughs> uh, having read it in 1989 before it 
Productions Mm -hmm. was like, this should happen. Back when it was five hours and that's just part one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in 1993, Al Pacino committed to being in a filmed production of it. <laughs> and he's fantastic. This should yes. be a career-defining performance for Al Pacino. Yes. And, like, I don't feel like people talk about it enough. <laughs> um, it's like Angels in America and Serpico. That's all you need from Al Pacino. Yeah. And apparently there's an opera what? of Angels in America. Fantastic. Um, well, I don't know. I'm kind of, when I was reading about it, I'm a little on the fence about it. Mm-hmm. So... It premiered in France in 2004, and it's based on both parts, but it's condensed to be two and a half hours long. Mm-hmm. And it focuses just on the relationships, and it apparently cuts out a lot of the political elements. Then what is it? It's just a gay fantasia. You lost the national themes. Yeah, that's I'm, I'm upset. Because <laughs> it's one of those plays that very much captures a certain point in American history. Yeah. And... And ties it so well to both the future and the past. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems weird that the plot starts in the 1906 San Francisco earthquake until you see it or read it. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it really works. Uh, and that's why it stands out so much as a play and why it's like one of the plays I think everyone should read mm-hmm. is because it is an epic. Yes. It's a play so large that covers so much. And it's also something that had people talking. I think you can probably compare it to like Hamilton now. In a way, with the... And Meryl Streep does. Was she? Yeah. Yeah. But like that, you know, it was a piece of theater that got people's attention. Absolutely. And started connecting people to issues that maybe they weren't connected to. Mm -hmm. And Hamilton, something that like took over the nation, took over the world. It completely revitalized the American play. Yeah. Like, if if you read actors and producers who are involved with the productions they they talk about the moment this this came to them and they're like oh right plays can be about things yeah people haven't been doing that for 20 30 years and that's a big thing that was said <laughs> when it finally went to, on broadway is that broadway can be about things because mm-hmm. for a long time broadway was more um show Mm-hmm. You know, the Broadway musical. Like, after Arthur Miller stopped his, his most renowned period, we were just kind of done, I guess? Yeah, and you know, a lot of <laughs> plays get revivals, so mm-hmm. you're not... They're still great plays, but you're not breaking new ground. Mm-hmm. It was a changing point. Yeah. Uh, I mean, th- this was the era of cats. Yes, this was. That was an important thing to remember. We have cats. We have Phantom. We have angels in America. Like, <laughs> and, you know, it created conversation about AIDS. One big thing, too, was Kushner said that the reason the play kind of has an uplifting ending and what other people who have viewed it have said as well is that that's what the world needed at the time. Yeah. They needed to see that the crisis around them was happening, but there's hope. Yeah. There's I mean, progress to be made. We just have to keep moving forward. And not not only Pryor's final line, but just the fact that he is living with AIDS. Yes. Uh, after seeing, he goes through some depressing, it's, degrading physical yes. like uh, uh, trials. It's not where you think it's going to go. Yeah. You don't think that will be his ending in the play. It's incredibly optimistic. Yeah. And it's also a great thing that looks at boundaries, mm-hmm. ones that are self-imposed. Uh, with how we like interact with people who are like us, 
unlike us, how we put up barriers based on our politics, our religion, our place in society. And it's so relevant. It is. To uh, the, the diner scene between Lewis and Belize, where Lewis is just running through his like self-defeating uh, irony poison liberal guilt mm-hmm. for page upon page upon page upon page. Mm-hmm. It's very long. Yeah. <laughs> Everything in the show is very long. It's very long. <laughs> very long. And then Belize just like cuts through his bullshit. It's like, you're just upset that you're a bad person because you left your boyfriend, you asshole. Shut up. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And, and even again to that final line, like, we, we will be citizens mm-hmm. in this time when you're seeing the world divided up between citizens and, and non-citizens. Uh, citizenship being stripped from Americans. Uh, the, the fact that it's becoming clearer and clearer that your human rights only matter if there is an internationally recognized body willing to go to bat for you. Yeah. And that is not true for, say, Palestinians in Gaza. It yeah. is not true for uh, people being held in ICE facilities. Yeah. And the LGBT community is always on that cusp of... Uh, uh, one bad thing could happen and mm-hmm. they, they may be in the same position tomorrow. Yeah. And segments are already there. Yeah. And at this t- the time when this was, you know, written, the stigma of having AIDS was so extreme. Mm-hmm. You know, people were dr- being driven out of their towns. Yes. Their homes. Yes. Their houses were being burned down when people found out. Like, when I first read the, the first time I read this play, I was 18. Mm-hmm. It was like first, I, one of my first acting classes. It was like thrown at us, and you're like, "We're all doing scenes from Angels in America or Marisol." That was it. That's what we were doing. Uh, you want the end of the world in Angels? Flip a coin. Well, and you have to think like that was 2006. Mm-hmm. In a way, not that long ago. Things a long seemed time ago. So nice in 2006. Things seemed so good in 2006. What? Well, <laughs> yeah, and looking back. As well, like the internet was newer. Mm-hmm. We didn't have the resources that are on the internet now, mm-hmm. and so like reading that play, it's not like I could. I feel like go Google, come up with all these things to like reference. Like I knew about the history to an extent. Mm-hmm. I knew about what was going on in the world at the time to an extent mm-hmm. when this was written. But it's so interesting. Like, now the resources you have to really, like, comprehend what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And it was a mind-blowing play for, like, pretty much everyone in that class being a freshman in college in 2006 coming from wherever they're coming from. Yeah, yeah. At an art school, let alone, like, I think it's just very interesting. And I'm like, hmm, I feel like I wasn't as aware as I should have been about certain things yeah, to an extent. And, like, th- looking back on it over the years and, like, rereading it and kind of getting better perspective each time. It is weird that, like, so- something as as meaningful as this and so many other things, so many mm-hmm. other plays, but being fed to art school freshmen, which is this heady mix of uh, indulged, wealthy suburban kids mm-hmm. and rural kids with a dream mm-hmm. and a lot of loans. <laughs> I feel like it's... So interesting looking at, like, my college experience then in an art school to, like, how much freer I think kids are going into art school in a way with knowing who they are mm-hmm. nowadays. Not to say it's everywhere, but I feel like there's more acceptance. Kids these days don't know how good they have well, it. No. Is that- no. It was a lot. It's I feel like it, not, and I'm not saying this is everywhere, every situation, 
But I feel like at a younger age, people are understanding and connecting with the fact of who they are. You you perceive a general trend. Yes. There's a trend that I perceive that more people understand their sexual orientation earlier. Mm -hmm. Understand who they are. And and are empowered to make that public to some degree. And not, I'm not saying everywhere. I'm not saying every situation. But say in like an art school setting, I feel like more people are feeling empowered earlier or coming into it earlier with that empowerment. We're like, I know in our situation, there was a lot of kids who were really like figuring out who the hell they were. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I'm like, that was a great thing to throw at. <laughs> and making people question like mm-hmm. kids who are coming from like different backgrounds being thrown into, okay, you do have to do these scenes that are questioning your yeah. relationships and your boundaries that you put up. And not just a show where like there's gay people in it and they are fully realized characters who have, you know, uh, uh, positive and negative traits and they have mm-hmm. relationships and families. Yeah. But one that says being gay is an inherently political act and a strive for survival. Mm-hmm. So deal with that. <laughs> Welcome to the mid '80s. Yeah. That was a long side. <laughs> I wasn't. That was not in my notes. I was not planning to go there. But so, what is in your notes? Yes. So I, I guess we'll take a break and we'll come back and I'm going to talk more about Ro- Roy Cohn. Okay. I guess because I don't know how to segue into him right now. This is a weird episode. We are back. Yes. We're going to continue on. Mm-hmm. We are going to connect this episode to our last episode. And some actual history. Yeah. Was other stuff not history? And a different segment of history. <laughs> uh, so we're going to talk about Roy Cohn. Fictional character as portrayed in Angels in America, Gay Fantasia on National Themes. Who was a real person. What? What? I thought it was a complete coincidence that this character shared the same name no! as that guy from our last episode. No! Same dude. Definitely the same dude. Man, he's terrible. We're going <laughs> to talk about him. Uh, so he was born in the Bronx. Uh, his uh, father was a judge and influential in the Democratic Party. Uh, his great uncle was uh, Joshua Lionel Cohen. Uh, founder and longtime owner of the Lionel Corporation that made the trains, the toy trains. <laughs> uh, now, he went to Columbia and graduated at 20, and he had to wait a year uh, before being admitted to the bar because he wasn't old enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, he used his family connections to get a position in office of the U.S. attorney, Irving Sapool, who was chief prosecutor on the Rosenberg case. He got that position the day he was admitted to the bar. Wow. Yeah. He's a, good connections. He's a get up and go kind of guy. Yeah. Real self-starter there, that Roy. Now, the Rosenberg trial uh, got him the attention of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. For more on the Rosenberg trial, go one episode back in the feed. Yeah. Uh, and he recommended uh, the 24-year-old Cohn to be chief counsel, choosing him over Robert Kennedy. Uh, some say it was to avoid uh, accusations of anti-Semitic motivation uh, in the investigation. 
he became known for his aggressive questioning and was given pretty much free reign on uh, many investigations with McCarthy only joining in for some. Mm-hmm. Now, he was involved in claiming that communists overseas convinced several closeted homosexuals in the U.S. government to pass on secrets uh, so that their sexuality was kept a secret. Mm -hmm. The the commies are blackmailing our gays, so we have to get rid of all of the gays. Yep. Uh, So they were accused of being a security risk and uh, communist sympathizers. And because of this, in 1953, uh, President Eisenhower signed Executive Order 10450, well, it changed security standards for federal employment and barred anyone that was gay from working in the federal government. Hundreds of people were forcibly outed and then fired from the State Department. And then it caused about 5,000 people uh, under federal employment, uh, including like private contractors and military, to be fired. Mm-hmm. Now, this stayed on the paper and was effective until 1995 when... President Clinton uh, rescinded the order and put in place Don't Ask, Don't Tell for the military. Mm-hmm. That's a really long time. Really long time. Mm-hmm. And not a great alternative. Yeah. You're not allowed to have anyone know you're gay was replaced with, you're not allowed to have anyone know you're gay, but we probably shouldn't ask you. Yeah. Uh, now, this type of witch hunt uh, continued in Florida. Uh, with the Florida Legislative Investigation Committee from 1956 to 1964. Uh, In Florida, they held their own investigations and fired teachers in public schools and universities for being gay. Around 200 people. Mm -hmm. Uh, They finally disbanded after they released uh, what they called the Purple Pamphlet, or Homosexuality and Citizenship in Florida. Uh, It was a booklet that was published in the beginning of 1964 by the committee. The hope was if they published their findings, uh, they would be able to persuade persuade the legislature to enact more anti-gay legislation and that they would, like, shock the state into doing what they wanted. Mm -hmm. Now, there was actually a huge backlash over it because they included a lot of photographs um, that were pretty explicit and showed, like, sexual activities. Mm-hmm. And they were actually uh, threatened with legal action. Uh, and the state attorney general told them to cease uh, distribution. And it actually completely destroyed the committee because their funding was cut entirely because they uh, put out this pamphlet mm-hmm. that everyone's like, this is, like, pornographic because of the pictures you're using. They were right. It did scandalize people. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently there was, like, a gay bookstore that, like, started selling copies of it mm-hmm. somewhere. I think it was in New York or you something. You gotta know your roots. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Cone's friend, uh, G. David Shine, uh, was a part of the McCarthy staff, and he was drafted into the army. Uh, Cone put a lot of efforts into trying to get him special treatment, and reportedly threatened to wreck the army if his demands weren't met. Uh, this and accusation. What would that even look like? How does one wreck the army? I'm gonna shut you down. You can't army anymore. <laughs> this and accusations of communists in the Defense Department uh, led to the Army McCarthy hearings in 1954. Mm-hmm. Um which after, uh, Cohen went into his own private practice. 
Well, after building a name like that, yeah, got to capitalize. Yeah. Uh, in 1959, the Lionel Train Company was involved in a family dispute over thought, who would take control. I thought this was just charming background color. I didn't know it was relevant. It, well, that's interesting. So in October, uh, Cohen and a group of investors gained control uh, after buying 200,000 of the seven. 100,000 shares, which were bought over three months right before this. Uh, and his leadership had the company in huge financial losses. <laughs> and he was forced to resign in 1963. So that's how you wreck a toy company. Yeah. Maybe that's what he would have done to the army. Maybe. Maybe. Um, there were federal investigations that happened against him uh, through the 1970s and 80s. He was charged three times with professional misconduct including perjury and witness tampering. If you recall, he did admit to witness tampering uh, decades after the Rosenberg case. Yes. He was accused in New York of financial improprieties with city contracts and private investments. Uh, He was acquitted. And in 1986, a five-judge panel disbarred him for unethical and unprofessional conduct, uh, misappropriation of clients' funds, Lying on a bar application and pressuring a client to amend their will. Hmm. Uh, in 1975, he apparently went into a hospital room of a comatose uh, Louis Rosenstiel, who was a multimillionaire, and put like a pan- pen in his hand and lifted it and had him sign the will, which him actually signing it because comatose. Yeah, yeah. Where he and then the guy's granddaughter were the beneficiaries. Uh, it well, was... Well, yeah, just for, like, some plausible deniability. Yeah. Uh, slide um, a granddaughter in there. It was it was considered not valid because the marks were, you know, indecipherable. Would you expect clear handwriting from a comatose man? I say <laughs> not. 1984 was when he was diagnosed with AIDS. Um, it is true that he insisted until his dying day that he had liver cancer. Uh, he did not go on the clinical trial for AZT, but he got the meds, mm-hmm. and how that happened is up for debate. I would guess illegally. Probably. That's probably, that's probably what happened. Uh, and he died in 1986. Yeah. It is nice living in a world, and at no point in my life if I lived at the same time as Roy Cohn. Yeah. I count true. that as, as a victory, even though it's entirely a coincidence. Yeah. I'll still take it. It's like, well, it's good. yeah. Yeah. Because he's pretty terrible. So there's a little more history about a man that connects these stories. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you about Ethel Rosenberg, who also does, because he already did that. I already did. It's, it's done and dusted, baby. Yeah. So, darling, what did you learn? I learned that I love talking about things I enjoy. Yeah. 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 Okay. So with that, we'll be back with some letters. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. Hello. We've got some lovely letters from folks like yourselves. So let's get to it. Alex wrote in with a show suggestion. And that's it. So thank you, Alex. We're not going to say anything else. To preserve the mystery. (laughs) Thank you, Alex. Peter writes in with a response for our prompt for this episode, which was... What play do you think everyone should read? 
Peter puts forward Sodom, or the quintessence of debauchery, which has no officially recorded author. <laughs> Peter likes this play for how it uh, uh, shows that the, the Elizabethan theater was not uh, all just sonnets and uh, fairy tales. At one point, uh, Baloximian, a character who is a king in this play, says... Quote, I do proclaim that buggery may be used or all the land, so be not abused. Which is, frankly, not a very good rhyme. Yeah. The meter leaves some to be desired. There are hundreds of obscenities littered throughout the play, and uh, has characters named things like uh, Fakadilla, Maid of Honor, and Barastus, the Bugger Master General. Yep. You know what? Pe- people are freaks. In any century. Yeah. So there you go. Thanks, Peter. Kurt wrote in with a show suggestion that we're also going to keep secret, (laughs) Uh, but also answered some prompts. Uh, Going back to favorite spy, Kurt brings up Glindwerk, Glinder? I don't know how to read Welsh. We're going to go with Glinder Michael, a dead homeless man who became the key part of Operation Mincemeat. The operation to deceive the Nazis about the location of the Allied invasion of Sicily. Uh, His dead body was used as a fake courier carrying fake documents pointing to a fake landing site. Very fake. Yeah. Top to bottom fake. I don't think that was even his real name. Yeah. Yeah. Probably not. Uh, And for this episode's prompt, uh, Kurt mentions... Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which is a very popular play when I was in college. <laughs> the stage combat kids loved it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There aren't a lot of funny combat scenes. There's just not a lot of combat scenes to pick from. That's true, especially fitting the constraints you had for the class, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but, like, people love that play. Mm-hmm. Um, Kurt also sends... A picture of his the snake Pippi and cats Chairman Meow and Cinder. <laughs> they are all very cute, including the snake. We are not opposed to snakes. Thanks, Kurt. Riv writes in with some congratulatory messages for Gextra Life. Thank you very much. And two responses to our current prompt. The first is Angels in America. Hey! hey! And also Indecent, a show about the first Yiddish show to make it to Broadway, which was called Vengeance of God and was censored on its opening night, and the cast was arrested. So Vengeance of God was censored not just because it was in a different language. Uh, The plot was uh, that a Jewish man and his wife ran a brothel in a Polish town, the reputation of which made it hard for them to find a match for their daughter, very fiddler on the roof, but who are they fiddling? Uh, who then enters into a relationship with one of the prostitutes from the brothel. So Indecent, the play about this play, uh, follows the lives of the playwright and the actors from the time it was first read up until the playwright's death. Riv managed to see it performed, uh, and it also aired on PBS. And you can find it on BroadwayHD.com if you don't have enough subscription streaming services in your life. I love plays that are about plays. (laughs) Like Burning Bluebeard. Yeah. Best play I've ever seen in my entire life. Mm -hmm. Riv also wanted to share uh, the General Slocum disaster with you, dear. The uh, second deadliest event in New York City history. It was the first until 2001. 
A community of German immigrants rented a boat to go on a day-long picnic off the Long Island Sound. This is sounding kind of familiar. Uh, 30 minutes after the journey started, a room on the boat caught fire. The lifeboats, vests, fire hoses were not inspected and were essentially useless. The crew was not trained for any sort of emergency, especially once uh, the, the passengers began to panic. Uh, some parents found some life preservers to give them to their children, tossed the children overboard, only to watch them sink, these defective life preservers. The disaster led to the deaths of over 1,000 people and nearly wiped out the German community in New York. Yep, that's totally a story up my alley. <laughs> I'm a terrible person. I like that we just did a whole episode in, what, 40 seconds? Yep, and I'm like, yeah, this is good. So thanks, Riff. <laughs> Claritic writes in uh, to talk about Australia's most celebrated play, The Club, by David Williamson. I always thought it was their most celebrated sandwich. Yeah. Or, or maybe soda. Or house. So The Club is about sports, except that it isn't about sports at all and has no interest whatsoever in what actually happens in them. Uh, instead, it is set in the back room in a, of an Australian football club as the older members who see the club as a community and a pastime clash with new management and new players uh, and the new idea that sport is business uh, and professional athletes. Mm -hmm. Apparently it was adapted into a movie in the 1980s, which is considered one of the classics of Australian cinema, though Claritic thinks it loses a bit of the point of the play because it cares and shows sports. Mm Mm-hmm. Which yeah, I can see. You actually see people yeah. playing football. Yeah. That's that's like with um, August Osage County, how the movie rendition actually shows stuff that outside the house. Which is illegal. Which, like, defeats <laughs> the point of this mm-hmm. house. I, th- I think you would like the club. Yeah. Yeah. The movie or the play or both? You just said you like plays about plays. Yeah. And it's kind of like that. Yeah. Elaborate entrance of Chad Deity is the bridge between plays about plays and plays about sports. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in my brain, I'm automatically thinking of it as like 12 angry men, but sports. (laughs) I'm just thinking of some angry old sports people against the young sports people talking about sports and being angry. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, And she does mention there is in-character racism. Also like 12 angry men. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks, Claritic. Jamie writes in once again. If you'll remember, Jamie was one of our very first writers in our very first episode. But they're working through the backlog and enjoying it all very much uh, and has a question for us. What are your respective favorite documentaries, historical or no? Ken Burns' Lewis and Clark fired up their love of history back when Jamie was a 14-year-old whippersnapper. Uh, Do you have a favorite? I really do like the uh, alien autopsy just for its audacious uh, appropriation of the form. Yeah. But then I'm a dweebo who says things like audacious appropriation of the form. So I don't know if that counts. Surprisingly, I don't really watch documentaries. Yeah. I don't really watch those. (laughs) And you think I would. Like if I, I don't know. I just never think to watch them. You know, America's favorite documentary is Cops. Yeah. Yes. Well, like, I watch, like, shows that have to do with stuff. Like, it's not a documentary, but Antiques Roadshow. That's my favorite. (laughs) There's so much to learn about things. It's true. There's so much backstory to these, like, random household objects. 
is How It's Made a documentary. <laughs> Watch a lot of How It's Made. Thanks, Jamie. <laughs> so I'm failing at answering this question. <laughs> and thanks to everybody who wrote in. As always, you can email us at... Uh, historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And we would love to hear your uh, show suggestions, your stories, uh, your, your questions, your corrections. You can ask us questions we can't answer. And also, uh, we, we love to hear people chime in with uh, their responses to our prompts. Yeah. Do you have a prompt? I do not, because anything I think of relating to my next topic would be in poor taste. Yeah. So I'm going to take a, a bye week on this one. This is the one where I'll allow it. Uh, so I guess that's catch up for everybody else. But again, those can go too. Historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And as Riv mentioned, we did have a great time at Gextra Life. Donations are still live at Gextra.life. And now I know for a fact that uh, the, the streams are being uploaded to YouTube a bit every day. Yeah. So by the time you hear this, who knows, you might even have the X-Files game to watch. Oh, it was a good one. Boy, that blandsome man. <laughs> he would be played by Angels in America era Patrick Wilson. Yeah. I think so. Patrick Wilson's too good for this. I know. But like, if it was actually made, I could see it being his part. He just I... like has the look, mm -hmm. like the facial look. I could see it. I guess we never did say that this is the reason I have such a crush on Patrick Wilson. Oh, he's so good. He's so good and good looking. Yeah. Uh, so Are you just so sad that you never got to see the full Monty? Oh, he shows the full Monty in a few things. <laughs> but I would encourage everybody to, to check out what you missed. We had a really great time. I, I think we were pretty funny. I don't remember much of it, but I think so, I assume. And I'd like to encourage you even more to consider donating. We raised over 42000 on the day, but those donations are still open and they still go to the great cause of helping sick kids in Flint, Michigan. Yeah. While you're out there, though, if you could give us a rating and review on uh, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you found us, that would be fantastic. You can also tell a friend. Mm -hmm. We are recording this on International Podcast Day. What? So, I mean, it just seems like the appropriate gift for, for the occasion. Tell your friends about your favorite podcast, which is us. If it's not <laughs> us, don't tell them. Well, tell them about lots of podcasts, including us. No, just tell them about us. And Sex Archie. It, well, and Sex Archie. It's us or Sex Archie. And Six Feet Under. Or his other stuff. That's fine, too. <laughs> or any podcast where they've mentioned Moki. That's okay as well. <laughs> I don't know of any other ones that would have that we aren't in, but sure. Sure, why not? Someone's going to send us some link about like some random podcast we've never heard of where they're talking about our dog because they listen to our podcast. And I will listen to every episode they put out. I will give them five stars on iTunes because I'm a good listener. And you can also get in touch with us on social media. Our Facebook, our Twitter, and our Instagram are all at History Honeys. One more announcement. Speaking of other shows, this is our last episode to go up before the new season of Riverdale. <gasps> yeah. So that means new weekly episodes of Sex Archie uh, recapping that show bit by bit. This is your time to uh, catch up on either their show or ours or both. It's, it's going to be good, guys. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. I, I don't know the, your own personal spoiler policy, but, like, it's going to be good. And if you've been following around, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
things are coming fulfilled in my life right now. <laughs> so we do look forward to hearing you and, and seeing you on that feed as well. So with that, I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your honey. honey.